Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Here's one of the things that I love about Brazos Fellowship. Pastor Will and the entire staff are relentless in their pursuit of creating a Sunday experience here in person, online, a Sunday experience where every time we gather together, we have the opportunity to be exposed to truth and then also to be challenged to put it into practice in our life. Like, how does this truth impact us Monday through Saturday? Now, here's something that I have learned about myself, okay? It doesn't matter how good Pastor Will is at his job. And he's really good, right? He is such a gifted communicator. He does such an amazing job of taking truth and making it applicable to our life. Not only is it personal, but it's applicable. It's something that we can actually walk around with and apply to our life. But it doesn't matter how good he is at his job if I don't take personal responsibility and actually apply it. Because here's what I've discovered over the last 12 years of being at Brazos Fellowship. Unfortunately, Pastor Will cannot apply those things to my life. I don't know if you knew that or not, but he can't apply truth to my life. He can show truth. He can show me what it looks like to apply it, but I have to take personal responsibility. Don't tell him this, okay? He's not here today. I don't always do that. I don't always apply the truth that is presented here on Sunday to my life. In fact, I struggle with it sometimes. When I was in grad school at A&M, I was working on my thesis, and this was by far the biggest school project I had ever had, right? It was like a 120-page paper, and I had been working and working and working, and it was time for my thesis proposal meeting, and so I had a committee, and I had to present my, my idea, my work, the preliminary start to my thesis. I had to share with them just to get them to sign off and say, yes, you can do this as your thesis, and so getting ready for that meeting, I decided I would like to go talk to my advisor and just kind of get her feedback before I had this official proposal meeting. And so I'm sitting in her office and and I'm sharing with her the work that I had put in and, and the time that I had spent on it. And I was pretty proud of myself. I had worked really, really hard, maybe harder than I had worked on anything else in the like eight or nine years of, well, we won't talk about that. That's a different story. But I had put in a lot of work, okay? And I remember being proud of myself, having a smile on my face as I finished up sharing with her. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting in her office, and she leans back in her chair. She folds her arms across her chest as we finish up. And after a short pause, she asks a simple yet very profound question. And she simply says, so what? (laughs) Wait, excuse me? What do you mean, so what? Like, I just told you... So what? I spent 15 minutes unpacking all of the work that I had done and everything I had put into this. What do you mean, so what? What I discovered that I didn't know then was that when she was asking me that question, she really wanted me to look past the textbook answer. She wanted me to look past what everyone else had to say on the subject, and she really wanted me to ask, so what? What does this mean? How does this apply? Why is this important? How does this change the conversation on this particular topic? I have thought about that conversation so many times since then. 
And I think, if you'll indulge me for a second, that it will apply to this idea that every Sunday we gather together, whether you're sitting in these chairs or you're watching from your living room, we gather together and we're exposed to truth, we're challenged to put it into practice, but so often, for me, not speaking for you, for me, so often it just ends there. It doesn't go anywhere. I don't do anything with it because I don't take the time to ask, so what? So what does this mean? How do I apply this to my life? And there's this, this disconnect that happens because it's so easy for us to look at Pastor Will, to look at the person on the screen if we're watching a video or the podcast we're listening to, and, and we just assume you're a professional Christian. You get paid to do this. It's probably a lot easier for you, right? It's easy for you to put all this stuff into practice. You know the right answers. You know what you're supposed to say. You know how you're supposed to act. But then we go home, and when we look, when I look in the mirror, I see my reality, right? I see my everyday. I see my home life, my spouse, my kids. I see the chaos. I see my neighborhood. I see my community. And I'm like, I have enough other things to worry about. I don't know that I have time to apply all these things to my life. And what ends up happening is that because of this disconnect, we never put into practice the things that we are being taught, the things that we are being exposed to, because we never ask this question, so what? If we look at the writings of the New Testament, there are a lot of things for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, the, the people who have raised their hand and said, yes, I am choosing to walk with Jesus. There are a lot of things that talk about what our life should look like as a follower of Jesus. Practices, attitudes, the way we treat people. And on top of what our life is supposed to look like, we then are also challenged, hey, you need to take that and you need to share it with the people around you. It's like, oh my gosh, wait, what? In fact, Jesus talks about this exact thing in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, hey, go and make disciples of all nations. When he says this, he is on his way out. He's about to exit stage right, like he is finished. His time here on earth is done. He spent the last three and a half years walking with, talking, teaching, and showing his disciples, his close followers, what it looks like to live a life that cares for the people around you and exemplifies Christ in your actions. And then he says this, one final directive. He's like, I want you to take everything from the last three and a half years. I want you to take all you've seen, all you've heard, everything you've experienced, and then I want you to invite other people to go on this journey with you. That's what he's saying when he says go make disciples. He's like, I want you to invite other people to go on this journey with you. And it, it sounds pretty straightforward, right? But what does that actually look like? What, what does it look like for us to invite people on this journey? Does it mean that we stand on the street corner and we hold up a sign that says Jesus loves you? Does it mean that we stop people in the grocery aisle? We're like, hey, can I pray for you? Hey, can I share the gospel with you? I mean, maybe, yes, maybe it means those things. I've never done those things on a regular basis, but maybe it means that. But I think that there is another way for us to invite people on this journey. In fact, Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, is writing this letter to the church 
the Colossians, the Colossian church, I don't know how to say it. Is it Colossae? Colossae? That's why I was trying to avoid saying it, right? He's writing to the Colossian church, and he has this to say about this idea of what it looks like to share Christ. Starting in verse 2, chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity and let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may always know how to answer everyone. In these verses, Paul gives us two different approaches for what it looks like for us to invite people on the journey, for us to share Christ. The first one is very explicit. He says, hey, there are people who are called to be an evangelist, to boldly proclaim the gospel, the message of Christ. In fact, Paul self-identifies as one of those people. And he says it in verses 2 and 3. He's like, hey, I want you to pray for me that I will have opportunities, that the door will be open wide. I'll have opportunities to share this message for which I am now in chains. He's in prison when he's writing it. I pray, I want you to pray that I would have these opportunities. And then he says this, he's like, that we would share it clearly, right? That we would have clarity in the message because there is a call on my life to boldly proclaim the gospel to everyone that I come in contact with. And that's one way that Paul talks about inviting others on this journey. One way he talks about sharing Christ with the people around us. But if he felt like everyone should take that approach at all times, then it would make sense that he would follow that up by saying, hey, I covet your prayers, and I am praying the same thing for you as well. I am praying that you have opportunities, that the doors are open wide, that you will boldly and clearly proclaim the gospel at every single junction, every single encounter with other people. But that's not what he says. As he's challenging the Colossian church, he's, he actually challenges them with three things of what it could look like for them to share Christ with the people around them. The first thing that he says is, hey, be wise in the way that you act. Be wise in the way that you act. Who you are and the way you act matters. In fact, Jesus talks about this in John 13, 35, when he says this. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus is saying, hey, you are going to be judged based on your actions. You're not judged based on your intentions. You're not judged based on your words. The people around you, the people in your life, the people you encounter are going to judge you based on your actions. And if you will choose to love the people around you, that is what will prove to them that you are my disciple, that you are my follower. He says it again in Matthew 5, 16. This is Jesus talking. He says, let your light shine before others that they may what? They may see not that they may hear, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that it is not only about what we say, it is also about what we do and how we treat the people around us. And then perhaps my favorite verse on the subject is 1 John 4, 12, and it says this. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, 
and his love is brought to full expression in us. I don't know about you, but I think it's absolutely crazy that we could share Christ simply by the way that we act, simply by how we choose to interact with the people around us, simply by choosing to love. And that's why Paul lists off and says, hey, be wise in the way that you act. The second thing that he says is make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Another translation says redeem the time. Your moments matter. James 4.14 says this, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while, and then it is gone. Essentially what Paul is saying, or what James is saying in this letter is, hey, you only have so many moments. Every day, you only get one shot. There's 1,440 minutes in each day. So make today count. Make the most of every opportunity, every chance encounter, every conversation, every action, every single thing that you do. You don't get a redo. We can't call in sick to life. We can call in sick to work. We can skip a lunch appointment, but we can't call in sick to life. And so Paul is saying, hey, I want you to be wise in the way that you act. Be mindful of how you're treating other people. I want you to make the most of every opportunity. And then the third thing, and this is where I want to camp out for a few minutes, he says, always have an answer. Always have an answer. Again, this is a recurring theme in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If he's saying that we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have, and if Paul is saying, hey, always have an answer, then that implies that we should live lives worth questioning. What if the primary objective as a follower of Jesus is to live a questionable life? What if that's our main objective? That, that Jesus, that Paul is saying, hey, I want you to live a life that's questionable. Because here's the deal. No one's going to ask us about the hope that we have no one's going to ask us about who we are. No one's going to ask us about what we do if we look exactly the same as everybody else. At the end of the day, no one is going to ask us if we have the same priorities as everybody else, if we spend our money exactly the same as everybody else, if we fill our time with the same things and we are in the rat race just like everybody else, if we treat our neighbor the way that everybody else treats their neighbor, what would they have to ask us about? What would be questionable? What would be intriguing about that kind of life, right? Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a call for everyone to be a bold proclaimer. Paul's very clear. Certain people have that call in their life to be an evangelist, to stand up in front of people and proclaim the gospel, okay? But I do think that Paul is challenging us I think he's challenging me that we should live a life that evokes curiosity. We should live a life that arouses questions so that when people ask us, what's different about you? Why are you like that? Why did you respond in that way? When people get curious, we then have the chance 
to give them an answer for who we are and for why we are the way that we are. Words are absolutely necessary. I've heard this quote a lot. In fact, I've used this quote by St. Francis of Assisi. It says this, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Most of the time when I have heard this quote or used this quote, it's because I didn't want to use words, right? It's like, I don't know, I don't have to actually say anything. Like, I can just be like this. I think words are necessary at some point in the process. Unexplained actions without words is not a full depiction of the gospel. It's necessary for us to have an answer when someone comes and asks us a question about who we are, when they ask us a question about how we live, when they ask us a question about why we are different. It's necessary for us to have words to explain to them. But I have to ask myself, are people asking me questions? Am I living a life that's intriguing? I got to be honest with you. I struggle with this. Full disclosure. I really struggle with this idea because I want to fit in. I want people to like me. I want to be popular. I, I am a 38-year-old dad of two that's been married for 11 and a half years who's trying to be relevant among college students. It's not super easy. Hence the way I dress, right? It's not super easy. Like, I'm trying here, okay? And I want to fit in. I want people to think that I'm relevant. I want people to like me. And so this week, as I was preparing for this, I was really struggling with this idea. It's like, how do I get on the stage and talk about this thing that I struggle with so often? And I texted a couple of my friends and was just sharing this struggle, asking for their prayers this week. And I asked them this question, do you know someone that lives a questionable life? And one of my friends was quick to respond and say, yeah, actually, there's this guy that works at the post office in Navasota. Maybe you've met him. I've never been to the post office in Navasota. But there's this guy that works at the post office that, man, he evokes curiosity simply by the way that he lives. The way that he treats people, the smile that he always has on his face, the way he handles customers, the way that he talks, the way that he carries himself, it's questionable in a good way. And so my friend who goes to Brazos Fellowship was compelled to go up and talk to this guy and ask him, what, what is different about you? Why are you able to be like this? He had an answer. You know what he said? I follow Jesus. Talk about a mic drop moment, right? Like, okay, see you later, right? It's like, okay, you follow Jesus, but here's the deal. When asked, he had an answer. When asked why he was different, he had an answer, and he said, it's, it's because of Jesus. It's because of who I am, because of who he is. And I get it immediately that might make you a little nervous, like, always have an answer. Somebody comes and asks me why I'm different. I tell them I follow Jesus. Then what do I say? I get it. Just share with them the hope that you found. That's what Paul said. Just be ready to always have an answer, to share the hope that you have found. You don't always have to have the exact articulate answer for every single situation. It's just being willing to actually open up and share with someone. This is not a new idea. This is how Christians subverted the Roman Empire. There were a group of Christians that lived so ridiculously, extravagantly alternate lifestyles that they literally changed history. Quick history lesson. In the 4th century, the emperor of Rome was this guy named Julian the Apostate. And Julian the Apostate saw Christians. He saw how they lived, and he was concerned. 
he actually wrote a letter to his officials, to his governors, all throughout the empire, and he told them, we have to do something, because if we don't, we're going to lose control of the empire. We're going to lose control of the people because of the way that the Christians are acting. What was he so concerned about? I mean, it's, it's just terrible. These Christians, they were feeding the hungry. Like, who would do such a thing? They were, they were taking care of intending to the graves of people, dead people, that they had never met before. They were caring for the poor and the orphan and the widow. I mean, like, are you as disgusted as I am? Like, who would do such a thing? They were practicing hospitality, inviting strangers into their home to be a part of their life. And it was working. Because of the way that they were living, Romans were converting to Christianity at a rapid rate. It was countercultural. It would be countercultural today, right? If we did those things. Rome was deplorable. Their human rights track record was absolutely disgusting. They didn't care about anyone except for themselves. They didn't care for anyone except for themselves. They dehumanized slaves. They didn't take care of the orphan or the widow or the poor. They didn't practice hospitality. But then along came this group of Christians, these followers of Jesus, and they flipped everything upside down. And so Julian the apostate is concerned. He writes this letter to his governors, and he says, if we don't do something, we're going to lose the empire. We have to do something about these Christians. And so you know what his plan was? He didn't want to arrest them. He didn't want to throw them in jail. And he definitely didn't want to kill them because it would have made them martyrs. They would have gained even more momentum and traction. And so you know what he told his governors? He said, I want you to outlove the Christians. I want you to feed more hungry people. I want you to tend to more graves. I want you to take care of more orphans and widows. I want you to be more hospitable, build more hospitals. But it didn't work. You know why it didn't work? Because you can't make somebody love someone. And these pagan governors had never experienced the love of Christ before. So they had no context or capacity to turn around and show that same kind of hope and love to the people around them. The plan didn't work. But for you and I, if we have said yes to following Jesus, if we have experienced life-altering, life-changing love, then we do know what it looks like to love the people around us, to live a questionable life. This shouldn't be a strategy for us as Christians. This should be the overflow for us as Christians. It should be the overflow of our heart because of God's goodness, because of what we have experienced, because of who we are. It's what 1 John 4 says, right? If we will love each other, then whose love is in us? Christ's love is in us. And then his love is brought to full expression through us. As we read through the New Testament, there are a lot of pictures that are painted, stories that are told, words that are used to explain and to show what it should look like for us to represent Christ to the world around us, what it should look like for us to love the people in society and in culture. And it can be a bit overwhelming at times. And if you read Paul's writing, he 
over and over and over, keeps reiterating the same idea of what it looks like to follow Christ. And he's not like just making this list of do's and don'ts. He's not piling on. He's not trying to be legalistic and be like, you have to act this way. You can't act that way. He begins to explain why this matters, why it's so important that we live that type of life. And in Titus, he actually is sharing this list with the church. And he's like, hey, speaking to the older women in the church, you shouldn't slander your husbands or drink too much wine. Speaking to the younger men in the church, you should live self-controlled lives. But then, in Titus 2.10, he explains why. He says, then they, the church, will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. That's the why. That's why we live questionable lives. That's why we love the people around us. Jesus said it. We're not judged just based on our words. We're judged based on our actions. People see our good deeds. If we choose to love each other, that's how they identify us as followers of Jesus. And so Paul is saying, hey, if you will act this way, why should the older women in the church that Paul's writing to not slander their husbands or drink too much wine? Because all of the other women in culture were doing that. Why should the young men in the assembly live self-controlled lives? Because no other young men were doing that. It would be countercultural. It would look different. It would be questionable. It would be intriguing. If no one is asking me any questions about who I am, about how I live, then maybe I'm doing it wrong. What would it look like for you to turn your neighborhood upside down? What would it look like for you to be a voice for the voiceless? What would it look like for you to engage someone that's different than you? Someone who has a different political ideology than you. Someone who has a different sexual orientation than you. Someone that doesn't think like you or look like you or act like you. What would it look like to actually engage with that person and invite them not only into your home to share a meal, but to invite them into your life? To actually begin to love this person? What would that look like? There is this shoe store in San Francisco that's called the Subterranean Shoe Room. And I really just put this shoe on the table because I thought it would make y'all curious. Was anybody curious why the shoe was on the table? Yeah, okay, I see a few hands, yeah. Just a subliminal proving of my point, right? There's this shoe store in San Francisco called the Subterranean Shoe Room. And it's run by this guy who used to be a church planter, and he really loves shoes. Like, he really, really loves shoes. And so he opened this funky little shoe room in the Mission District in San Francisco. And when you walk in, it's pretty much what you would expect from a shoe room. It has shelves all over the wall. There's shoes everywhere. And then down the middle of this shoe store, there's this big chase lounge where you can sit down and you can try on your shoes or you can wait for your friends and family. And as you walk in as a customer, the owner would approach you and, and ask you, hey, can I help you? And if you're anything like me when you walk into retail, your response is, no, I'm good, I'm just looking, which is code for leave me alone, right? I got this. But he typically follows up that response with, well, if you're interested, if you will come and sit down on this Chase Lounge and you'll share your life story with me, I'll tell you what kind of shoe you're actually trying to buy. Some people are like, that's weird, and they leave. Other people are intrigued. They're like, come on. Can you really tell what kind of shoe I want to buy just by me telling you your, my life story? And so they'll sit down, and they'll begin to share their life story with this guy. For some of them, it takes five minutes. For some, it takes much longer. 
And the details start coming out. I'm single, I'm married, I'm gay, I'm straight. I grew up in church, I didn't grow up in church. All these different details, whatever people identify as important to their life story. And, and what he said is so often as people start sharing their story, sitting on this Chase Lounge in this two-store, they start sharing things they've never shared before with some random guy that they just met. And tears come out with the details. And as they wrap up sharing their story so often, he'll look at them and he'll be like, wait right there. And he'll get up and he'll go and he'll grab a shoe off of the wall. And he comes back and he's like, is this the shoe you were looking for? And at this point, their emotions are a little raw. Like they just bared their soul to this guy. And so they're like, oh my gosh, that's exactly the shoe that I wanted, right? And so he sells a lot of shoes. But here's the most interesting thing. He said that as people are wrapping up their time, as they are doing their final transaction, they're about to leave the shoe store with this new pair of shoes that he got them to buy. So often they ask him this question, who are you? Are you some kind of like guru? He's like, I'm a shoe guy. They're like, no, 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 no. Are you like a psychiatrist that's pretending to be a shoe guy? And he's like, no, I'm just a shoe guy that loves people and loves Jesus. He said, true story, that since he has opened his shoe store, he's talked to people a hundred times more about Jesus than he ever did as a church planner. As soon as he became a guy who loved people and chose to listen to them, all of a sudden, people started asking questions. So my question to you today, who are you? Who we are matters. What we do matters. It's not enough for us to say that we love people. We have to actually put it into practice. We have to apply it to our life. We have to have this so what moment. This isn't an agenda. These are the values of Jesus. If you're here this morning, as we wrap up, and you're like, Chris, I don't know what a questionable life looks like. I would encourage you to look to Jesus. He lived the ultimately questionable life. He lived this life where he came and took my place. He took your place. He died for our sins. That was our punishment. We deserved that because we were broken, because we were sinners. But Jesus came and he took our place, the ultimately questionable life, so that we could have a relationship with him. And maybe today, your next step is to take a step towards Jesus, to say yes to a relationship with him. And in just a second when we pray, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. For everybody else in the room who said, hey, I've already made that decision, I would just encourage you, be wise in the way that you act. Make the most of every opportunity and always have the answer. It's not about being a smarty pants. It's not about being a know-it-all. It's about being prepared to give an answer when people begin to ask questions because this is your mission should you choose to accept it and it will not self-destruct in 30 seconds. Live a questionable life. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.